Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ross Mullen, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. (laughs) (coughs) All right. There you go. <laughs> Are you done? Yes. <laughs> <coughs> okay. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the terrifying task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a sometimes terrifying and terrified discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. Before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those that you give them away to every new customer who opens a bank account (laughs) as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I don't even know what sort of bank that would be, probably microloans. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lenny, Rick Taylor, Toby Dekelstorf, Jay Berry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I'm just thinking about, like, women starting small farming operations in Uganda receiving <laughs> a, copy a, tar- a target book with their micro load. <laughs> like, what am I supposed this to do This is what this? not to do. <laughs> yes. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, except, uh, well, of course, when I remember to put the forum up. I am aware that for this book, I did not do that. I apologize. I humbly apologize. It won't happen again. Tisk tisk. I know. There will be flagellation. There will be. There already has been. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7k motherfucker. TinyURL.com Y7KMASPR. You're doing the Auton doll voice. No, I was doing, um, what's your name from The Expanse? Mm, very good. We continue now with our discussion of the first novelization from Season 7, Terror of the Autons. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Terror of the Autons, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Robert Holmes, that aired from 1271 to 12371, published by Target Books in May 1975. As of this recording in June of 2019, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. The PDF. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So, welcome, both of you, 
and our listeners to our season seven. We made it. Yes, and to the first story of the seventh season of the actual show, wherein we get another long list of firsts. We're introduced to our new companion, Josephine Grant, played by Katie Manning. A new unit officer in the form of Captain Mike Yates, played by Richard Franklin. And a new villain, the Master, played by Roger Delgado. We're going to have all three of these folks for a little while, so I'm going to do a bio for each of them separately over this episode and the next two, so that we're not just buried in biographic material for everybody. We also get the return of the Autons in a new script written by Robert Holmes after their popularity and success in the previous season. Although it's considered by many, including John Pertwee himself, to be one of the best episodes they've produced, it was a troubled story both during production and after it went out. For example, that scene in which Mike Yates hits an auton with his jeep and knocks it down the hill, only to have it immediately get up and start back up the hill, was filmed. Mm -hmm. But the stuntman injured himself by falling further down the hill than he'd intended to. But he still, in the tradition of Doctor Who stuntmen everywhere, still got up and still went up the hill. And oh, it, wow. it's an amazing shot, even more so because, <laughs> because of how he's far actually he goes. suffering. Oh, God. Well, you well, don't know it because well, the Auton isn't supposed to be suffering. Well, the Auton just falls down and gets right back up, and it's like terrifying. Well, Among other injuries, were Katie Manning injuring all of the ligaments in her foot by jumping off of a Jeep on her very first day of filming. Oh, wow. The poor thing. And finally, Nick Courtney was ill that same day, so the Brigadier had to be doubled by another actor. On a lesser note, even the effects work was often subpar in the story, as the production team experimented with using CSO, color separation overlay, um, blue screen, for backgrounds rather than building sets. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's just awful. The final appearance of the Nesting Consciousness is absolutely embarrassing. It's one of the times that the book really improves on the story because you don't get to see that lovely, you know, Lovecraftian-esque thing that we actually have an illustration of in the yeah. book. You instead get lights, sparkly mm. lights on the, uh, yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> then the problems really began when the show went out. The scenes with the killer doll and the Autumn policeman created such controversy in the press and among viewers as being too frightening for children that this story ended up being cited as an example in a discussion of the impact of mass media in the House of Lords that year. Wow. So imagine Ooh. Doctor Who coming up in the Congress. Yeah. No, I could imagine that from yeah. the story. Yeah, exactly. So Parental after the advisory. Yes. Well, yeah. uh, Doctor Who would end up doing having that happen a lot <laughs> because this production team basically said, no, we're not going to do that again. And then the new producer came in with Tom Baker and said, you know, we're going to do that again. <laughs> because you get ratings that way. Speaking of getting ratings, <laughs> let's talk a bit about the lovely Katie Manning who was born in 1946. She was the daughter of a sports columnist and the younger sister of a fashion model who ended up living in Roanoke, Virginia, just across the uh, state from where I grew up. After spending a whole year in the hospital after a car accident at the age of 16, an entire year in the hospital, she came to the U.S. and was offered a five-year contract with MGM, which she apparently did not take up. Instead, she returned to England, began stage acting, and made her TV debut on the BBC in 1970, the year before this. Thus, her casting as Joe Grant at the age of 24 was something of a major thing for her. She would go on to play the part for the next three seasons, making her the quintessential third Doctor companion in much the same way that Sarah Jane Smith is the quintessential fourth Doctor companion. 
She's continued her association with the show since then by doing audio dramas both to the show Grant and as the renegade time lady, Iris Wildtime. Yes, that is the character's uh, name. You read my mind, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's... It, let's wow. just say that Doctor Who fandom in the 90s went down several weird rabbit holes. <laughs> and some of it was just like, yes, so let's show Doctor Who in its craziest. And so they get the renegade time lady and Iris Wildtime who happens to have adventures that are very similar to the Doctor's but not quite... So you don't know whether she's making it up or not. Hmm. And um, Katie Manning plays her in the audios with uh, this very northern accent. So it's funny, but... It does actually sound kind of entertaining. Yeah, Yeah. it is entertaining. I remember hearing about the character on print and thinking, God, this just sounds awful. And then I heard her do an audio and I was like, oh, I can live with this. Even though it's still a ridiculous concept. (laughs) She also made a canonical reappearance in the Sarah Jane Adventures episode, The Death of the Doctor, in 2010. Which leads to one of the best lines ever that the Doctor has to a previous companion, in which he says, Boy, imagine it from my point of view. Last time I saw you, Joe Grant, you were what, 21, 22? It's like someone baked you. Okay. Yeah. From an old man, but sure. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm kind of amazed they let that one through. But you'll also notice that this book is again another example of early Terence Dix. This is actually his fifth novelization. He's obviously still interested. Yes, yes he is indeed. Yes. This is published in 1975. It's only the 14th in the Target series. When we get to the novelization of Colony in Space and maybe two or three stories, a book by Malcolm Hall called The Doomsday Weapon. You'll notice something really odd. Even though that serial comes three stories later, that novelization introduces Joe as a new character because it was published the year before. So there's no real reason that this happened, but it's fun to note anyway. It's like Ian and Barbara showing up for the first time in Doctor Who and Unearthly Child, and then again in Doctor Who and the Daleks, which confused us as kids. As to the cover... It's only the second Target book to feature the partial logo associated with Tom Baker that was actually introduced in Pertwee's last season, the one normally called the Diamond logo. The first book to feature it was, of course, Baker's first novelization, Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, which we have not gotten to yet. Who's reading the back cover for us? Well, I have to look in my hand, <laughs> so I guess it would be me. The evil master leered at the Doctor and triumphantly pointed out of the cabin window. The mini-tentacled nesting monster, spearhead of the second Auton invasion of Earth, crouched beside the radio tower. Part crab, part spider, part octopus, its single huge eye blazed with alien intelligence and deadly hatred. (laughs) Can the Doctor outwit his rival Time Lord, the Master, and save the Earth from the nesting horror? Question, question, question. Is it going to happen? Well... Given that that's the very last scene in the book, I can probably say yes. Mm-hmm. What a weird thing. I hadn't actually read the back cover just to, you know, give myself a surprise this time. Wow, they go straight to the end they of the story. They just go straight to the end, but... Which is I mean, probably... Until you read it, like, you don't know that. Until you yeah, read it, true. it's nearly yeah. incomprehensible. Well, not incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. The br- my brain did not retain it at all. It was just kind of word salad to me. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Like, really? oh, we're going to see the nest teams again. Oh, okay, blah, 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 other stuff. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was going to be... From the back, mm-hmm. it seemed like there was going to be more presence yes. of, of the nest team. And, uh, you know, in fact, one of the critics of this episode, 
uh, said it's not really an Autumn story at all. It's essentially the master using mm-hmm. the Autons as his foot soldiers. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, yeah. Yeah, the, the master's the antagonist. Yeah, it's... and get used to that because... <laughs> yeah, so there is that. Except for that creepy doll. Except for that creepy doll. Which... I can totally see why the BBC got on them, yeah. or the government got on the BBC about that, because even today, as 33 years old, that doll creeps me the fuck out. Does it really? Yes. You've seen it then? Uh, no, reading the book. Reading yeah. the book? Yeah, just yeah. thinking about a little creepy doll. I, oh. But I have a history with dolls being kind of... Uh, oh. Yeah. That would do it, yeah. It just... It reminded me, I don't know the film, but it's the little like Polynesian doll. Yes. Or whatever whatever film that is. That's what it reminded me of. Yeah, and, and that... I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> I just wish I could remember what the film was. Let me pull out my phone, and I will show you that sequence. Because it, you'll have to tell me whether or not you feel it's more effective on the page. Personally, I think it's more effective on the page. I really do. I mean, I would imagine, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, just a little bit. Because even even now, seeing films with like creepy dolls and things, it is not. It's not. They're never well done. But there's just something canny, like uncanny, yeah. and just off-putting. Yeah, I think that's part of the, <laughs> the non-charm. Is they're never quite right. The mer- the, yeah. jerky, the the motion's always jerky. Yeah, okay. puppet master. Go ahead and unpause it. It's beyond me. Ah! <laughs> well, it's very meaty looking also. The yeah. Hands. Yeah. It's very much like the troll dolls that were popular around that time because they keep saying it's an adult novelty. Well, also, I guess since it's uh, since they're doing. They're doing basically blue screen with it. It's It looks like a teletubby. <laughs> since it's a real person in a costume. Oh, yeah. It looks like a Teletubby as opposed to like using a miniature and doing stop motion. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The actual strangulation was more comedic than the lead up, but that's yeah. true. And uh, I, I, but the book I, I thought was incredibly creepy. And also, yes. if you noticed when you see her coming back from the kitchen, it's just a photo of a kitchen, mm. which is what I was talking about yeah. with the dodgy uh, CSO in this yeah. story. Otherwise, yeah, I think probably. The mistake they made was, one, deciding on a doll, and two, deciding to put a real person in it so yeah. that it looked very... Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, but it is creepy. It's super creepy. Oh, God. It's still creepy. <laughs> well, in the novelization talks about how everyone who sees it is so off-put by, like, oh, yeah. this is a toy, this is a novelty, you expect people to <laughs> like this and buy it, and they talk about the texture... Being slimy and yeah. clammy and mm-hmm, exactly, it is it, it it's telling instead of showing, but it's told effectively. Everyone is repulsed by it and is creeped out by it. Mm-hmm. Every time they refer to the plastic in the story, you get a sense that oh, because it's animated by the Autons, it feels like organic plastic mm-hmm. wood, like yeah. that damn chair that suffocates the guy to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is another terrifying sequence. It yes. actually works quite yeah. well on yeah. screen. Yeah, and it's just a matter of them doing an inflatable chair and having him kind of wrestle with it and deflating it while he's pulling it over his face. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's terrifying. And in some ways, this book is too. I can just imagine somebody thinking, um, 
you know, thinking back to the story, having seen it a few years before, and then getting immediately terrified again because the illustrations are actually quite good. Yeah. I miss Doctor Who books having illustrations. I Even have... when they're bad, they're good. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I feel like this is the best illustrated book that we've seen. Really? There, there might be others that I, I didn't see. But, well, it's... I, at one point, was convinced the internal illustrations were John Byrne. Really? And then I saw that they were credited to some completely other person that I was plainly wrong. But um, (laughs) it was particularly this illustration here on page 72. I'm like, look at her face. That's a John Byrne face Mm. if ever I have seen a John Byrne face. Him pulling the the flesh mask off. But then it was was someone I'd not heard of. The shame is, if you read the text... The the uh, illustration the gets in the wrong angle because the policeman's turned around by that point and the doctor is pull, pulling it forward. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that illustration is particularly terrifying. Yeah. That's that's a that's an episode cliffhanger, by the way. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine the little kitties going, "Oh my god, the policemen are all out on and being terrified of the police for the next week. Well, the front and back are very Starenko influenced. Yes. I feel like with this. Really great page design, and yet this kind of creepy, oily grossness, too, that mm-hmm. is off-putting, but that's totally appropriate to this story as well. Mm-hmm. And as a child, you look at it, and there's something vaguely unsettling and pornographic about it, but you couldn't say what. <laughs> well, you know, like something kind of vaguely adult, even though there's nothing like that going on. Sort of back it, to pornography. Well, I'm just saying about that particular art is <laughs> known for these elements. There's something terrific design, what's kind of weird and off about the actual details of the mm. illustration that I thought was, was terrific. Yeah, and in fact, that back illustration, well, this part of it anyway, is taken from an actual promotional photo from the show. The so heartbeat at the bottom was really nice. Oh, away. God, yeah. I didn't even notice that part. That's that's actually awesome. Yeah. Good God. I feel like it's the best design covers we've seen. Before we've seen just kind of illustrations with logo, but these are mm. full design collages that I really like. That being said, this first, this little bit down here where the doctor's coming in and saying, Hey there, Master, how are you doing? Right. <laughs> We're just trying to stop him. Just waving at him. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like, hey. But once again, that's that whole... Sturenko influence of the individual figures can be quite awkward, but yes. the overall impression is so dazzling and sensational. You don't notice that at first. That's true. Until you realize a person's arm isn't quite put on right. Mm-hmm. I think this may be one of the first... Well, no. I usually give you PDFs of the first editions. So you've seen a gradual evolution of the covers already that they go from being very, very simplistic with the Doctor's face and maybe one character from the story or the uh, creature from the story to having the Doctor not there at all to having the Doctor in a weird place, as we'll see in the uh, giant robot one. see a really different creature design on the front cover versus towards the end here on page 121. Are they not different artists? Because uh, I thought... I, I think so, but like, which one's more similar we see on screen? Yeah. Because this one has almost like a brain design, well, and then this one's... Yes. Amusingly disinterested by the whole <laughs> thing. I know. It looks kind of bored, doesn't it? Yes. It's <laughs> but it has a great <laughs> sense of motion. Yeah. Well, the one on the front cover is closer to the concept, but then we never really see the besting consciousness fully realized on screen, even when the he... It appears again in the first Eccleston story. It's basically a vat of goo. Yeah. Yeah, so we never really see it fully realized in this way. These illustrations are by far the best mm. depiction of it. Because, as I said, when you uh, 
when you get to that climax in the televised version, it's just fairy lights on the um, radio telescope. Hmm. It's like, that's not a octopus. That's nothing. <laughs> what is that? What the hell? Ball lightning? Celestial Yeah, I guess so. Well, so what were your uh, impressions otherwise? <laughs> I mean, obviously you saw this cover and you were like, oh my God, how did it affect the story as uh, you read it, if at all? I don't know. I think immediately, uh, like we already said, Dix cares about this one. Mm-hmm. Immediately, just the writing style, the, the details that were in there, the descriptions, just it flowed and it had a not any difficult language, but just the way things are described, the way that the, the care for detail mm-hmm. is there. You know, just mm-hmm. immediately made this feel it was going to be good. And yes. I, yeah, we're I, still getting characters with backstories, for instance, yeah. which I think is lovely. I mean, Rossini, for instance, mm-hmm. we get immediate backstory. We get backstory of um, who else do we get backstory about? Oh, the um, the people running the plastics factory. Yeah. Um, which is basically, to some extent, what he did for um, Spearhead from Space, All Time Invasion. But you notice that coming right off of Invasion, we would have loved to have seen that sort of background for Stallman or for Petra or from Greg Sutton, yeah. and we just didn't get it. Nothing. Yeah. There, you can really see the difference when you put them side by side like that. Yeah. He definitely cares about this. So where do we start? What else? I was actually really surprised that Rossini um, survived as long as he did because we were mm-hmm. yeah. uh, told such off-putting things about him at the beginning. In a, <laughs> in a delightfully entertaining way, I thought. I, I liked that he he's taken on this fake Italian name of Luigi Rossini when his original <laughs> name is, what is it? Lou Ross. Mm-hmm. But then later he's very suspicious of foreigners. Right, exactly. <laughs> he hires the worst circus performers who can pay them nothing and built up his own, re- own wealth. I thought he was a great sort of mid We have another thug named Tony, which really upsets me. Yeah. <laughs> Why do they always have to be named Tony? But in terms of the, your question about the front cover, um, it gave us a nice opening image of the master. That, that, that the, both the illustration and the initial description gave us the idea of this. It was an overly simplistic description of a sort of dark, foreign-looking figure or something, but something that... I thought communicated well the idea that people don't notice features so much yes. as shape and aura overall. Exactly. Sort of. yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. Although in my mind he was sort of evil linen. Yeah. I guess um, you could make arguments about actual linen as well, but it's sort of a linen-esque yeah. sort of That's appearance. That's exactly what Roger Delgado looks like when he's doing The Master. Yeah. But you're right that he's more of a presence, like an Eminem yeah. Grease. Yeah, than the people have this else. idea of what's going on here. Who is yeah. this? Which is why it's so hard for them to catch him later. It's because everyone thinks, oh, it's not the master, it's the Spanish ambassador. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. He's, um, you know, we might as well start with the master Slippery. because we've been waiting for a while for him, haven't we? Yeah, we've, yeah. Had, we've had a lot of uh, <clears throat> false leads. Yes, we have indeed. And now we have he in the flesh. He's here. Long before he becomes a she. Uh-huh. Which is also brilliant. Spoilers. Yes. Speaking <laughs> of which, I, I just saw Michelle Gomez again in um, the, um, I, what's it called? The Creepy Adventures of Sabrina? Or the, mm-hmm. I, I watched both seasons of that because I've been binging TV like crazy lately. And she's a villain in it again. Uh-huh. And she's just brilliant. Much in the same way that Roger Delgado is brilliant. Does that brilliance come across on the page? Do you get a sense that this is really the the doctor's Moriarty 
his arch nemesis. I'm a little confused in the story if he was supposed to already know him or not. Yeah. It seemed to be yeah. indicated both ways. Yeah, it is. Oh, this is an amusing person to meet, and oh, I know what he's up to. So I wasn't sure which way they were indicating, or if they made up their minds yet. No, it's it's indicated that the Doctor already knows who the Master is. We'll later find out that they went to the Academy together, and yeah. they've always had this rivalry, but it turned homicidal at some point in the past. Yeah, it's like initially when the Time Lord comes to warn him, it seems like the Master is a fellow Time Lord that maybe is, you know, a most wanted. Someone that the yes. Doctor may know about, but he may not personally know. Mm-hmm. And then you find yeah. out, no, he knows him. He knows he him. He went to school with him. Yeah. They're, you know, they're What's close. that Jack and Apes up to now? Right. I think he actually uses yes. the name, the word Jack and Apes. Yeah. So, uh, oh, I totally missed in this book. He says they went to school together. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Um, I he did say it in this book then. Yeah. Okay. okay. I, I'm sorry. I yeah, I remember. That. I remember reading it. Um, I don't know if I have it notated anywhere, but um, because I know the the first reference to it on screen is, uh, I can't remember. And I just rewatched this story recently, but I know it is not in the televised story. You graduated at the same time, did you not? Oh, that's right. I believe his degree in cosmic science, science. Has, was in a higher category than yours. <laughs> so yeah. Remember, he's not a real doctor. I have a master's degree in science. So yeah, at the beginning, <laughs> at the beginning of the conversation, it's just like, oh, this that's a time war that, he, you know. Right. Okay, yeah, I did read that, but I didn't take that as <coughs> they knew each other. It's just he'd heard of him, maybe. Right, right. So didn't. we know they're contemporaries, at least. So there's, there's that, for sure. But, yeah, is he everything that you'd hoped for and more, given that both of you are familiar with him in his later incarnations. This definitely seems like an early version of the Master. Mm-hmm. It, you know, definitely uh, kind of a, a guy sitting and uh, <laughs> like like coming up with plans. Yes, not, twirling not, his mustaches. Yeah, more nefarious. I can see that. But, Very perils of Pauline. Yeah, of. but I can totally see that, you know, the more that they interact, the more that they have a chance to build a backstory and a relationship and mm-hmm. interweave the stories. Yeah, of course it's going to become more complicated. Oh yeah, absolutely. I like that he has the persona of an extremely powerful, extremely self-assured individual, but not the skill set and power yet. Right. And that actually came as a surprise to me. Mm. Because he's so good at convincing people that he's in complete control of all these situations and all these individuals and all the overarching plan that when he fails so many times <laughs> and he's called on it and he's threatened about it, it's actually a surprise because I'm used to Master who is almost impossible to defeat. Yeah. And I thought this was a lot more interesting. His, <laughs> his, his constant Frustrations at being thwarted and embarrassed, and not right. be, not quite being at that level, or actually really anywhere near that level that he likes to make people imagine that he's at. Hmm. Yeah, and I I could see that. In fact, I buy that explanation for why he hates the doctor more than I buy the explanations that are given later that he's you know hearing drums in his head and that drove him insane. It's like no 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 no. Now, no, thought this was great. He tried to kill him twice, failed. <laughs> I'll just toy and you know, telling the next I'm just toying with him, it's for entertainment. I want to be really good when I finally do him in and inside he's who's this guy? <laughs> and I love that yes. Dix actually tells us yeah. he he was he was actually quite annoyed that yeah. he hadn't killed the doctor. Yeah. Is that in the episode that he has this sort of No, not really. You don't get that as much in the episode that he's like, Oh, he actually seems like he is toying with him rather than just 
you know, the doctor's outwitted him. Right. Right again. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's a really good detail, though. And again, that adds to their mm-hmm. the relationship. Well, and that gets him in, in trouble with the consciousness that he yes. right. has <laughs> wasted all this time messing around with the doctor and also not <laughs> managed to kill him despite all the time he's been on the side project. So he's off the project now and mm-hmm. manages to, you know, stay on retainer. And I thought it was interesting yeah. with where... As a reader, you're at first not sure what the power dynamic is. Is the master right. more powerful and using the nestines and the consciousness? Is consciousness using him? Mm-hmm. And it seems like <laughs> they're equal partners, but the nesting consciousness is very much what he needs to, mm. you know. Do, do they both think? Humanity. Do they individually both think they're using the other one? And, yeah, yeah, that and, seems like. And what's what the act? Which one of them is correct? Yeah, exactly. It's just a shame we don't get more of this you know, sentient nesting consciousness yeah. as we did in the last one. Yeah, I think that's that's my <coughs> one like negative thing about this book is just how quickly it wraps up at the end. Just okay. like all of a sudden it's just like we don't always like run with troops. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> oh it's worse on screen. Because at least here when the doctor is saying you fool, do you think they'll they'll be able to tell you uh, apart from any of the rest of us? Right. You get the master's thought process right. on the page where he says, and he thought about it and he realized, oh, the doctor may be right about right. this one, maybe I'd better do this. On screen, it's instantaneous. It's almost like, oh my god, you're right. How could I have been so stupid? Let's let's work together and yeah. stop them. And just it's just change of heart. Oh, yeah. it's ridiculous. And I wish I could say that's the only time the Master does that. No. No, because they really want him to come off as just dangerous enough to be a threat but not enough of a threat to actually be any danger, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Well, it also, I, I, I think in ways it kind of speaks to, like, the doctor always, like, I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. So right. it's like, does the master feel that way, really, yeah. too? Yeah, the master like, isn't, doesn't care. He's willing to kill anybody he needs to. But He's, kill the doctor as well? Do you well, think that, that the master has like a special relationship with the doctor? That like, oh, I know he does. He's got to. So it's like you don't want to actually kill the doctor. No, you're having fun. No, out of this. That's exactly <laughs> it. And you, I, I will say, even though I do not like, I, I hate to say this, I don't like John Sims' interpretation of the master because I think it's a little bit over the top. Even though I love John Sims as a uh, actor, the thing that comes across in the new series interpretation is that they have this love-hate relationship that verges more on love for the master, mm. to the point that the master has him in his grasp for a very long time at the end of season three, and never actually kills him. He just tortures him and turns him into a CGI gnome for much of the episode, yeah. but he never actually kills him. He keeps him alive for a year, and you're like why is he not killing him? And it's because he'd be bored if the ma- if the doctor weren't around. I got the impression here, he really did mean to kill him a few times at first. He just yeah. couldn't manage to do it. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing. If he ever succeeded, he'd be really upset. Yeah. Yeah. And since this is, like, our first uh, experience with that, that's that's a good place to start. Exactly. I maybe wanted to kill you at one point, but now keeping you alive to play with you is more fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And by the time you get to the female master, you've got somebody who doesn't want to kill him, but wants him to suffer real hard because she's upset that they're not friends anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and then turns into, tries to be be the doctor at one point so that they can be friends again. Hello. I'm Doctor Who. 
And these are my plucky assistants. Thing one and the other one. Bill Nardo. We picked up your distress call, and here we are to help, like awesome heroes. Yeah, we're not, we're not assistants. That's okay, right, what, so what does he call you? Companions? Pets? Snacks? Oh, someone's watching. Well, it's quite a good beat, really, isn't it? Yeah, maybe we should be moving on. Yeah, and he calls us friends. Which I think is just a brilliant. I think that's yeah. one of the things that, that last season did really well. That she's almost to the point of being a good person. And then she meets somebody who reminds her that she's not. And I'm not going to give away who that is. Because at least one person in this room has not watched those episodes. And it's a big reveal. So <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Witt. Really quite good. But yeah. Yeah. So yes, the master. If I actually mm -hmm. caught up, who would you have to scold? You, you like the master That's would true. lose. I'd have to, I'd have to <laughs> lose take your it purpose. Well, yeah. as we were talking about earlier with people, you know, having to take shit at work all day and then taking it out on other people, <coughs> I take it out on my students. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's what would happen, or my roommate who's used to it by now. But oh, and the point I was trying to make about the female master. By the time we get to those stories, we realize she's in love with him to some degree. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's definitely an unrequited love yeah. thing happening, mm -hmm. which is interesting in its own right. Little of <laughs> that, though, when the master seemingly commits suicide instead of choosing to regenerate when yes. David Tennant, doctor, is so upset. Offers to care by, about yes, well, he, from, Yes, yeah. because he was actually excited to fly around the TARDIS with him and have kind of a mischievous <laughs> prisoner to, to entertain him. And he's yes. really upset. Yeah, it's, I thought it would seem very similar. He's very it upset is. to have been rejected by the master. Not, exactly. Not just losing him, but his... I'm sorry, I'm going to dive deep into the nerdum here for a second. Before the new series started in 2005, there was a pilot for an animated series. Mm. And it was Richard E. Grant doing the voice of the Doctor. And it was called Scream of the Shalka. And it's a very good story, but it's another ninth Doctor. It's not the Eccleston one. But in that incarnation, the Master is in the TARDIS. He's trapped in, a ro in an android body. Okay. And the doctor's kind of keeping him, keeping watch over him, and he act, actually kind of acts as the maitre d' for the TARDIS, which is the most <laughs> bizarre thing. And he's played by, voiced by, Derek Jacobi, who then later plays the master when he shows yeah. up in the 2005 series. And it's like, oh, that's just brilliant. And is playing him still as the, uh, the war master in uh, the Big Finish audios. Mm. But yeah, the... I'm sorry. I know that we're getting further and further away from the book, but that's kind of the interesting thing about yeah. the character of the Master, yeah. that we're just... Well, like we said, we've been waiting for this. We've yeah. been waiting for this showdown. It yeah. holds up for people reading it as a flashback, but it's not a flashback. This is the order in which the story was written. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's perhaps more restrained than a flashback would have been. How so? Well, it doesn't try to reverse engineer too much profundity into the relationship. Ah, it actually it. is a simple start. Right. Um, That's true. Whereas a flashback that was actually uh, written after the the stories that we're talking about from the last 10 or 15 years, I think would have been a little more, tried to have been more profound and just ended up being more pretentious. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I would say that's true. This is a simple beginning. Where they're just both really annoyed by one another. <laughs> yes, they are. And they try to kill each other with phone cords and bombs <laughs> and stuff like that. Yes. 
<laughs> and yeah. well, but they're—it's more interesting when they both can be defeated. They're mm-hmm. not. Neither one of them seems like an unstoppable menace at all. True. True. And they both seem very smart, but not absurdly, unstoppably smart. You mean the doctor and the master. the doctor and the master yeah. both are very smart, very bright, very ingenious, but not. They're not both ten steps ahead of the situation. They're trying to be. They're both maybe a step and a half mm-hmm. ahead of the situation. And so that's, that's more interesting. Except with each other, because they're yeah. kind of a step and a half in different directions. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think the main thing that they both share, and this has been noted in later stories, is Time Lord arrogance. Yes. That they believe their yes. way is the right way yeah. and damn everyone else to hell. <laughs> And sometimes that's going to get the doctor in trouble. It always gets the master in the trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he's the sort of villain that says, well, since you're going to die anyway, I'm going to tell you my whole plan. And the doctor says, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> How about Joe Grant, our new companion? A lot of people criticize the, the first Wolverine movie as the most awful action movie they'd ever seen. And I thought it wasn't very good, but it wasn't horrible. Okay. But they talked about his, you know, the, his primal scream scenes. And I actually think it would have been fine to have one. But you can't get away with three or four. So I think any one of these screams would have been fine. But there are way, way, way too many Who's screams. screams you mean Joe, Joe's? Joe, yes. Oh, yeah. Way too many of Joe's screams is what I was leading oh, up to I here. See. Was... And any of them individually actually makes sense because she is see, she's not shown as being skittish. She's seeing horrifying, upsetting yeah. things, oh, yeah. and we're very creeped out. For the out. first time. So they all seem actually very justified and quite reasonable in the circumstance. But there are way too many screaming Joe scenes. I could see it that. It was a little bit like Back to Victoria. Yeah, I could see that. Did you feel the same way, Dalton? Does she scream a lot to you? Nah. <laughs> I didn't notice it as much. I should have taken no, notes, but I feel like there are like six screams. I'd be interested it's, to maybe see there that are not because six, but... I don't remember that many screams. I know there weren't that many in the actual televised version. Well, screams and shrinking back or, you know, various huddles. and Because she really doesn't do a lot of that. I mean, she does, but... Not as much as is on the page. I think I complained last time when, um, yeah, I complained last time when Malcolm Hulk had Liz <laughs> falling into the doctor's arm mm, and arms yeah. and sobbing. It's like that never fucking happened. No, no, no. These women are a lot stronger than that. Like I said, individually, I didn't think she was seen as being unreasonable in the situation. It just happens too often. Yeah. yeah. But that might also be because she's kind of putting herself in situations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I have a, a notation here from, I guess, whenever they were sending her out uh, to do something. And it says, uh, Joe decided that modern intelligence methods failed to make proper allowance for women's intuition. She made her way around to the rear of the factory and climbed nimbly over the locked back gate. Mm-hmm. So she's definitely someone that is not going to be pushed around and right. is going to decide for herself what she's going to do. And that scene actually reminded me of Jamie as much as any previous yes. yes, yes. Because does. Jamie is yeah. in many ways not that bright but he's actually very good at fighting and mm-hmm. on the fly strategy. Yeah. Yes, well, on the fly <laughs> strategy for sleeping up a drain pipe or mm-hmm. down a wall and visually getting the information. So I thought the women's intuition line was kind of patronizing. But, yeah, well, but the idea that she just... Dicks, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yet, I don't think the, the way that he portrayed her overall in terms of actions was patronizing. Like, she seemed like she was really pretty competent. Yeah, yeah, right. But inexperienced and naive as opposed to silly, which is a, an important distinction. Yeah, and that's something we have to remember about this character, because even though she talked herself into this job because of her 
uncle in the UN. She is trained in escapology. She knows code breaking. She knows everything that she needs to know to be part yeah. Yeah. of this uh, intelligence uh, task force. I thought it was a nice arc that we see her developing a little more street smarts. Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. that, that was, I thought that arc worked because if they tried to do younger, more simpering Liz, which is I thought what we were going to see at the oh, beginning, yeah. mm-hmm. more sort of emotionally in need of approval Liz, mm-hmm. that was going to be really unappetizing. Yeah. I, I'm, it, it, it seemed like a much a much mm-hmm. different character right. in a way that I thought, you know, Dix has these weird, you know, moments of insight and enlightenment, then he <laughs> goes back to, he reverts to form. He really is um, a man of his times. Uh, yes, yes. Well, times are changing around him, and some of it he really gets, and some of it he really does not yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I got the feeling that to the brigadier, the doctor needs like a girl to help him out. Here's a new girl. Yes. And maybe this one's not as bright as the last one. That kind of amuses me. But I'll send him a girl. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, in his mind, distinguish between someone fresh out of school who's like 21. And Liz, who has all these doctorates, in my mind, she was mm-hmm. like 30s or something like that, and has all this Except experience. Except she wasn't, she was that. late 20s. But, but it, more experience. But the mm-hmm. doctor sees right away this is right. a completely different kind of person. Right. And Dix portrays her as a completely different oh, kind yeah. of person. So I thought that was actually a nice way to do it. And I'm glad you brought that up, because he gets rid of one of the best lines that Robert Holmes gives to the brigadier. Because the doctor says something about, I'd, I'd, like, to have a, I'd like to have a system more like Liz... And the brigadier says, Dr. Shaw said that what you need more than an actual equal is somebody to pass you your test tubes and tell you how brilliant you are. (laughs) (laughs) And essentially, that's that's Joe. Except she's more capable than that, which is awfully nice. That arguably lasts for just a nanosecond, though. Well, and they kind of allude to that whenever, you know, Joe comes and she's like, Doctor, I've done this and this and this. And he's Mm -hmm. like, oh. Yeah. Maybe you do have some use for me. Which is different than Liz, who would say, I figured out that we need to do this, 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 and that. But she doesn't actually do it. She's a brain trust and a strategist Mm -hmm. as opposed to a field agent. Exactly. But I think in the same way, Joe's just like, all right, you want me to do that shit? I'll do that, and I'll do more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's she's a very, you know, get-up-and-go kind of girl. So she's like, okay, you want me to do this, Mm -hmm. like, menial task? Sure, I'll do that, doctor. What else you got for me? (laughs) So when the brigadier (laughs) says, well, you're going to have to fire her, he just can't do it. (laughs) Probably because she's not only capable, but he realizes he's going to just devastate this poor child as he keeps uh, referring to her. Yeah. Yeah, she's got that go-to-itiveness that Liz, to some degree, doesn't didn't quite have yeah yeah and i definitely think drawing the comparison between joan and jamie is yeah it's that yeah yeah, it's a scrappiness it's just like okay Mm -hmm. well i may not know a lot but i'm gonna try but Mm -hmm. a different not not book smart but strategic right and not not master plan strategic but i'll get us (laughs) out of this jam strategic yeah yes that she took science at a levels but didn't pass (laughs) okay there are some things there I feel like the last several books we've gotten a lot more uh, typos from the OCR scan. Probably. I was wondering if it was supposed to be A levels because the books actually said O levels and I had no idea oh, what that meant. Oh, the book says O levels? The book yes, said O levels. But I don't know what O levels are, oh. if they're a real thing, or yeah, if they it's are. an OCR. And I think is, I, it, is it good? Is it high? Is well, it low? I, I think I tried to explain this once before. And my knowledge of the um, is English level school a system. real thing? Yeah, it was. Okay. Okay. They don't really do them. I don't think they do them anymore. In fact, 
let me do what I did before <laughs> and actually look it up and tell you what it says on Wikipedia because um, if I do that then for us silly Americans well if it was yeah. a joke saying she did oh I did the third grade level I, I didn't get it well here's right. the thing the O level was um, a subject based qualif- qualification as part of the general certificate of education mm-hmm. which was their um, equivalent of a diploma and basically, it was introduced alongside the more in-depth and academic, academically rigorous A-level, which is an advanced level. O-level is ordinary level. A-level is advanced. Gotcha. So if she got O-levels, then she's basically got a high school education and maybe a junior college education okay. level. So compared to Liz, science. she's boasting, yeah. I have the scientific knowledge and mastery of a 16-year-old. <laughs> yes, okay. exactly. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That's so, precisely That's it. what I did not get. Yeah, um, I think the O-levels have been phased out, and many regions, they don't really do them anymore, but at the time that this book was written, yeah, it was still a big thing. Um, Let me see if I can find anything else on that. I I can't remember, because I think in the televised version she said she studied (coughs) A-levels but didn't pass, but then it makes more sense for her to have studied O-levels. So let me double-check and make sure what it says in the book she did. I said, I'm sorry, my dear, but what I need is a scientist. I took general science at A-level. So I'm sure you did, but... Now, how are we into some true minutia? What is the specific level of academic credential? Well, yeah, we kind of need to know that if we're going to spend any time with this woman, yeah. <laughs> Full transcripts. Yes, exactly. With any disciplinary actions. <laughs> 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 Cheated on their history midterm. <laughs> And consequently endangered mm-hmm. some war later when time traveling. I know. And you got to love the fact that he immediately gets an assistant who immediately gets herself in trouble, which is just brilliant. <coughs> Sorry. There we go. You come here for these thoughtful, in-depth remarks from our host. <laughs> <laughs> and you stay for the genuine earthliness. Yes. Why genuine? Quite unaffected. <laughs> and of course, as soon as I as soon as I say that, I get to the I see that my my eyes fall on the line. Cut out the boiled egg, well, Elsie. I said quite apart from the effect on my digestion, they're yes. boring to look at. Very <laughs> funny. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, she did take O levels in science. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but there's a later line where she says she didn't pass, so that's why it's because he has to explain a term to her. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like uh, to do uh, <coughs> to read aloud some selections from this very Freudian interrogation scene. Yes, please. Without further context or remarks, I'm cutting some things out. Of course. That's what she said. When the doctor's head cleared, he found himself inside a very large and ornate caravan. He struggled to rise from his chair and gave up the idea when he realized that he was tied to it by coil upon coil of rope. A bulging, muscled strongman in a leopard skin was winding around the last few coils. Another man dressed as a, as a circus ringmaster stood watching, smoking a big cigar. <laughs> Rossini chuckled and took a puff at his cigar, deliberately blowing smoke into the doctor's face. First, you tell me why you're so interested in my friend's horse box. <laughs> You better shut up, he yelled furiously. I asked the questions. The doctor looked at him in quiet amusement, but said nothing. Rossini became even more angry. He nodded to the strong man. Tony, see if you can loosen our guest's tongue. (laughs) 
You better talk, mister, or Tony will snap your arm like a carrot. (laughs) Tony, however, was finding things unexpectedly difficult. Twisting the doctor's wrist was like trying to twist a steel hauser. It simply didn't budge. I don't know what a hauser is, but in my mind, it's a very phallically shaped object. All right, so what do I think of this lovely, (laughs) of this tent scene? Well, this purple prose. (laughs) It would have been worse if Dix had remembered that the actor who played Tony was uh, African. Um, because we probably would have gotten the big black thing again yeah. like we did in previous books. In fact, I've forgotten it's, about that. it's the same actor who played Toberlin yeah. in Two Little mm. Cybermen. Yeah, it's the same actor. <laughs> so it's a good thing he forgot, you know, the big black Tony. God. It's like, oh dear lord. That would have added another level to the whole weirdness of the thing. <laughs> Rossini controlled himself with difficulty. What were you doing in my friend's horseback box? <laughs> Trying to get in, said the doctor simply. You see, I detected certain rather interesting vibrations. Oh, my God. Rossini grunted. I don't think my friend is going to like you. Jesus. <laughs> he felt vibrations on no the wonder, horse box. No wonder it took you so long to finish the book if you were reading this much between the lines. I still say the definitive, <laughs> unintentionally <laughs> dirty purple prose is a translation I read of the Iliad that was supposed to be for young people. Then they took hold the one of the other and strove together for the mastery. It's that sort of language where nothing is actually explicitly sexual in any way, and yet everything, mm-hmm. is, which is much yeah. more entertaining. Oh yeah, that's so. true. I, I would t- I would tend to agree. Okay, so could all of these, all of these. Offenses, the accidents? <laughs> like, is he trying to be funny, or this is just... Uh, no, I think okay. that's the way Dick's right. All right. <laughs> I think that purple prose is exactly what you get when he's well, it's like caring the, about it. The so. eroticism of every uh, Wild Wild West scene, where <laughs> there are two to four people tied up. Yeah. It's always oh, has course. this kinky overtone. Of course. But I mean, always thought that was mean, on purpose. You mean the series, not the movie, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, but no, nor have I, but yeah, but then the it's series yeah. No, no, it is, really. What? It's said Bill Smith, guys. Yeah, but no, 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 no. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> yeah, the, I've, I've got the first season of the T V series on discs. So I've never me. seen any of it. Oh my god. It's wonderful. Well, but thinking of the fact that in Wild Wild West it's actually more eroticized when the two guys are tied up than when the female guest stars are tied up. That is true. That's what seems similar to me. Yeah, I agree. In a way that cannot possibly be an accident. It's such a regular characteristic of the series. (laughs) They're cowboys, right? Well, no. They're um, agents for the Secret Service. No. For Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. But it's the Wild West, so it's... Yeah, they're not cowboys. Well, but they're... They're, it's the wild they're, west. Like, they're like secret agents. But it's like a gay rodeo. That's they, what I'm getting well, at. No, like no, gay. no, no, not at all. But as secret agents, they have access to the latest technology and fabric, so they have amazingly tight pants, but they still walk around. So well, that's oh, I see. They may meet well, some see, along the way, but they're not. I, I don't think we're going to reach them. No, I know. I know. I know the premise. <laughs> I know the premise. What I'm getting at is oh. cowboys already have an underlying gay. Like, well, yeah, I mean, so, Dark Mountain and all, yeah. So you're in the Wild West. Uh, well, so yeah. that's the thing, though. That it wouldn't have read that way in the '60s when that show was. No, but it's unintentionally yeah. homoerotic. But you're right. Yeah. That's what I'm getting. It's at. the same yeah. sort of. It's the same sort of unintentional homoeroticism that people claim to see in the original Star Trek, which I've never seen mm. between Kirk and Spock. 
I mean, that's where we get the con- the the term slash fiction comes from Kirk yeah. slash Spock being done yeah. in the family. So, I mean, I definitely yeah. see it, but I don't think it was intentional. Whereas so. Wild Wild West, I think it was intentional. Yeah, and you can see a lot more of it in other, you know, buddy shows well, like uh, Man from U.N.C.L.E. There's supposed uh, to be sexy. I'm not <coughs> sure it's supposed to be homoerotic sexiness. I think it's supposed to be for the ladies as designed by gay men. I could be wrong. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think they're telling the studio one thing and actually designing something else. Yeah, that might be a bit of a Play stretch. Girl magazine I've, I've never read anything okay. in the, about the background of that show. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm mixing up things I've read about Wild Wild West with other as, series. But. As, as gay men, though, you have experienced behaviors of straight men that are very okay, homoerotic. Yeah. Constantly. And if I call them out on it, I get beaten up. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly, it's unintentional. It is totally to the untrained eye. I I have friends who are very much into wrestling. (laughs) And when I point out, you know, this is just the heterosexual version of soap operas, they're like, yeah, we know. Yeah. 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 Complete with sex. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's totally unintentional, but it's totally there. But (laughs) I don't think it's (laughs) necessarily... What? (laughs) I don't think it's in that book. Especially in that scene, oh my god! Because well, <laughs> we've gone very far. Off track. Yeah, I'm sorry, and yet completely unrepentant. That's and blah, blah, fine. Blah. That's fine. Did anyone notice we have a Santarin gr- fragmentation grenade before we even know what a Santarin yes, is? Yes, I was going to ask. Is this the first time they're mentioned? This is the first time they're mentioned in the books. Yeah. Is it? Are they mentioned in the episodes, or is this something? That They've been mentioned by them okay. because 1975. Um, the Sontarans were introduced in the first story of John Pertwee's last season, and this was written around the time of uh, Tom Baker's first season, when they appear again, and Robert Holmes. So it's in the Robert Holmes Doctor Who universe, so I think that's Terrence Dick saying, well, this is another Bob Holmes creation, so I can put it in. So those of us who know the series as well as we do are like, oh, nice, cool. I'm sure if you were reading this in 1975, you'd be a kid saying, Oh, wow. We just saw the Sontarans on TV a few weeks ago, and yeah. here they are again. So what happens in the episode? Um, it's not it just some from, other... It's a, it's a grenade. It's just a grenade. It's just a grenade. It's just some other explosive device. Yeah, they don't call it's it. It's not a name anything. drop. Yeah, there's no name drop at all. But for that matter, I'm a little surprised and very happy to see something that I long suspected. I always thought that Terrence Dix was the one who coined the phrase chameleon circuit. Mm. It's in this book. And you remember Chameleon Circuit mm. because we went to see Legopolis at a Chicago mm. TARDIS a couple of years back. And it was all about the Chameleon Circuit. Yeah, it, um, he coined the term, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I liked the, the description of that. Mm-hmm. He continued <coughs> his struggle to work free of his bonds using a technique of muscular contraction learned from his old friend Houdini. <laughs> and then Joe comes in, whole scene changes him. Yeah, of course it does because there's a woman in the room. Not imagining all of this. Yeah, because there's a woman in the room. There is something. Oh god, I'm trying to remember what it is now. That's completely popped out of my head all of a sudden. Something to do with the the master's sadistic nature. That subplot with Phillips, the professor that he kidnaps and then yeah. turns into a clown literally. Yeah. Oh yes, and it amuses him to have yeah. him doing menial tasks. Does yeah. not happen yeah. in the televised version at all. Does it kidnap him at all? Or he no. doesn't have him doing okay. He doesn't kidnap him at all. That person's not in the televised version. Hmm. Yeah. And I suspect it's Dick's 
showing us a little bit more about the master's sadistic yeah. nature and yeah. showing us this really is a bad guy. One. That every single thing that the master does in this story is about power dynamics. It's about yeah. him exercising power, him being frustrated when he can't exercise power, or someone seems to be trying to exercise power over him. Yes. So that he would amuse himself by humiliating someone just because he can. Yeah. Although he does say that he needs him to maintain equipment, I thought. Um, yeah, but he doesn't in the um, televised version. Mm-hmm. Nothing like that happens. But yeah. that he just, for fun, also has him perform. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or, water. Or, yes, yeah. yes. Which is just test. insane if you think about it. And <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up, too, because, yeah, everything about the Master is humiliation and subjugation. Even the way he kills people. The uh, tissue compression eliminator, the thing mm-hmm. they used to shrink... Uh, well, Gooch down at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah he's shrinking his enemies yeah. down to smaller than him so he can be bigger than them. I didn't even think about the fact there's more than one kind of creepy doll in this story. Yeah, yeah. The, that was the, the first body one. that, that they find. The body yeah. they find. Yeah. It's one of the better uses of CSO in the story, in fact, because what they do is the lunchbox. I guess they put some blue screen in the lunchbox, mm-hmm. and then they had the actor playing Gooch kind of fallen fall on the sound stage somewhere else, crumpled. So it looks like an actual human body shrunk down, yeah. and it is just terrifying, whereas in Logopolis it's just a couple of uh, action figures, which is actually kind of cute. But, yeah, um, we also get the first sense that dying that way has to be really awful. Yeah, I, I have the that <clears throat> highlighted. Uh, Gooch felt as if his whole body was being clamped in a giant fist and squeezed. Yes. He seemed to be shrinking, rushing down the wrong end of a telescope into mm. blackness. What he doesn't do is tell oh. us how painful that must be. Well, there's, he... there's a book in the 90s, though, when they reintroduced the Master, that um, you get the death of a character from the character's mm. point of view as he's being shrunken down, and unfortunately the process isn't... Um, uniform Ooh. your outsides are shrinking faster than your insides do so your skull is uh, crushing. crushing your brain oh. and it's like <laughs> yeah it just sounds it's agonizing it's like god no. he would do something like that no. yeah so Dix has given us a really good introduction for both the master and for Joe Grant mm-hmm. I almost hate to bring him up um, what do we think <laughs> of Mike Yates what do I think of what? Mike Yates. Mm. I forgot he existed. Okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, so the one line I really liked is... Oh, he made the shot of his life blasting the doll in midair. I like when a story shows that, you know, making a good shot is actually difficult and rare, and that fighting yes. is hard work, and the scene did a good job of that. He didn't actually expect to make the shot, mm-hmm. and that it was very lucky. Then it actually becomes surprisingly graphic and brutal for a doll. <laughs> steadying his revolver for both hands, Yates pumped five more bullets into the twitching shape. They literally ripped the doll apart, and it disintegrated into a dozen pieces, head, body, arms, and legs, all flying in different directions. The crash of the heavy revolver was ear-splitting in the laboratory and the air full of powder smoke, and I was wondering if that was an embellishment for the book, or if this was a way that they sort of, you know, in the same way that killing robots is a way to have violence in children's cartoons, yes. if this was something that was reasonably graphic on screen for the mm-hmm. time, but since it was a non-human, they got away yeah, with it. Yeah, the doll ends up in pieces. And it is disturbing when you have seen a person in that costume and you know that it, it was animated. Yeah, even if it's a CSO effect, just seeing the pieces <laughs> of that creature, yeah, it's it's... Not nauseating, but it certainly is a terrifying moment. It's not a notable scene for anything about the character. It's just he mm. makes a good shot and and, yeah. and yeah. then continues to fire. It's not his 
personality that makes it memorable. Exactly. I mean, Yates, it's just some guy. It could have been a guard who walked in. Yeah, he's intended to be kind of the love interest for Joe, but that never develops. Into well, anything. I with that scene and also with the scene with the masters like sneaking in and switching out the phone cord and then being <laughs> yes. like, "Where's your ID?" Oh, I. Like, it's like, is he supposed to be a fuck-up? Is he supposed to be, like, a little bit of a, a, a dumbo? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, remember, he activates the doll by making some cocoa yeah. on the Bunsen mm-hmm. burner. Yeah, that's the third scene. Yeah. So, yeah. It's actually, that like, was kind of which, amusing. Which I'm just kind of happy about, because it revealed how it's activated, but he's at first really annoyed about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, Yates is... You, you're kind of surprised that Yates has gotten as far as Captain. Okay. Uh, but he's incredibly capable when he needs to be. Yeah. And that's the important thing. The interesting thing about that character, and I'm not going to give anything else away, is that he actually has something of a character arc, unlike the other characters that are introduced around this time. Okay. Yeah, when he leaves the show, oh, we're gonna he's see him changed again? a bit. You know, oh. God, yeah, he's a regular now. Oh! We're going to see him I, I would again. not have guessed that was going to be the case at all. He's, just he's a regular. So disposable. Yeah, by this point we have what's called the unit family. I, I think it's the point at which the premiere stops being edgy. Because the first season's very edgy, all four of those stories. Whereas now we have a very kind of cozy military family yeah. with this evil uncle who comes in to twirl his mustaches <laughs> from time to time. Doesn't every family have one of those? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, there's something about this season I'm not revealing to you yet because I want to see how you react to it when you realize it's happened. Um, yeah, he's going to be here. He's going to be here for at least the, the rest of the season and well into the next. Okay. And part of the last one. And even after Joe Grant goes, we will see a little bit of Mike Gates. Hmm. And he'll be in The Five Doctors. <laughs> in that same scene where he's singing Shadows and he, he appears with Liz Shaw, where he never appeared with on screen. I like the idea that he will find ingenious ways to prepare different kinds of hot beverages... <laughs> under pressed circumstances in every episode and we expect that one of these days it will like the storyline will pay off and it'll save the world by throwing you know coffee in the face of villagers but it never does it's just six episodes every oh, or six stories every single one of them that would be he brilliant. provides hot beverages and then he dies that would so. be brilliant that would be absolutely brilliant what about the Autons? I do want to talk a little bit about the Autons and <clears throat> whether or not they come across as uh, still menacing or whether suddenly not having shop window dummies and having people strangulated by phone cords and smothered by daffodils given to them by big people in big heads, whether that's still... But that was a great passage. Is it well, really? Great might be overkill, but the idea of this freaky circus troupe wandering around with their big heads handing out these plastic flowers I mm-hmm. thought was very creepy. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I felt like it was something out of The Prisoner. If either of you have seen that series from the 60s, it's very, yeah. it's very, yeah. yeah. It's got that same sort yeah, of weirdness Yeah, sort of surreal, yeah. Almost like that scene in the Avengers movie where they're all in bear costumes. That's what they were trying yes, to do. Yes, it actually seemed like a very Avengers kind of scene. Yes, that's what they were trying to do with that scene and it just came across as ridiculous. I... Okay, well, on, on the page, I thought it came across as quite creepy and menacing. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. Oh, this, this scene with the... Yeah, like, in the, the, yeah, the book, yes. Yeah, where exactly. That's what we're seeing on the back page. It's, it's oh. a distinct interlude in that none of the regular characters are present. They're talking right. about something that happens across weeks or months. Exactly. Which is not something we've had much of in these novels. No, where we, we have haven't. a big gap in yeah, the timeline of the story. Mm-hmm. Usually it's you know, 
a day or two, maybe a week. Not yeah, two. and we've had problems with that before. Like with, um, what was that one story? Um, Seeds of Death, where it seemed like time was passing a lot faster on the moon than it was on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, whereas here, <clears throat> the book is paced very nicely. The story, if you watch the story, you're like, wait, how are they doing this so fast? Because it does seem like it happens in the course of a few days. Well, it also kind of brings up like what actually is an auton. Is it any kind of sentient plastic? Mm. Right. It doesn't have to be a mannequin or a humanoid figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the phone cord attacking the doctor, yeah. the chair mm-hmm. that just engulfs him like the blob from fucking creep show. Yes. I thought the phone cord was pretty good comedy. Yeah. Oh, well, it, well, it was yeah. the way John Pertwee played it. <laughs> because, of course, remember, he's a comic actor, yeah. so when he's yeah. filming that, it's like, I don't know. Well, like, why is this cord so long? <laughs> the guy likes to walk around. He ordered it. He on his bed and talk to his friends. <laughs> friends. Yeah, he calls up Drew Grant in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, but the, the auton, mm-hmm. kind of, the form of it, has changed. Mm-hmm. Agreed, and in fact, that's one of the that's one of the things about the two thousand five reboot that I kind of wish they'd followed through on screen because when Russell T Davis novelized that story, Rose, he did go that far. Yeah. So you see the investing consciousness signal going out, and you see people being strangled by their phone cords and by other bits of plastic that we would be used to in two thousand five. Yeah. And it is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's like, yeah, this is what it should have been. This is what we should see on screen. And and the idea <clears throat> that different signals can activate yeah. You know, the, these beings. You know, they're not... It's, it's interesting because you might think, oh, God, anything sets them off. But if you think about it, that means you really can't anticipate how to fight them. Because if heat will set off this one... And um, a face will set off this one, pattern recognition. And if a sound will set off this one... And electricity. Yeah. What sort of defense do you have against any of it? And the answer is nothing. All you can do is react. Yeah. Precisely. Which is why probably the end of this book seems so rushed to you. Yeah. Why did it feel rushed to you? Because I know why it felt rushed to me. It just it just felt like it was going somewhere. It was going somewhere. There was going to be an invasion. Something was going to happen. Mm-hmm. The Nestians were coming. And fuck all happens. Yeah. <laughs> just... This is a really, really, really common weakness in sci-fi stories. Is you build up this all the suspense around an enemy who's so difficult to defeat because they're so ingenious or they plan so well Mm -hmm. or they're so decentralized and then we've built up all this interest of oh goodness how how are the heroes going to win bring in an army or punch everyone in the face or come up with some very conventional wrap up that the story has built up uh, when the story is built up that a conventional wrap up isn't going to work so I thought that's kind of a letdown yeah I mean this <clears throat> bringing the master around to help yeah. <clears throat> is just a little odd. It's interesting, though, <clears throat> and I'm going to go outside the book again for a, a moment. Big Finish Audios, for a little while, did a series called Doctor Who uh, Unbound. And they did various, like, it was like What If, the Marvel series, but for Doctor Who. What if the third Doctor had not been exiled to Earth? What if the... The ends didn't justify did justify the means for the doctor. What if the doctor never left Gallifrey? Some of them are really interesting. 
the one in which the third doctor does not end up on earth is really terrifying because you find out that he was supposed to be in on earth in 1975 and helping unit they sent him to hong kong in 2003 and they regenerated him into the wrong form it turned it's david warner playing the doctor David Warner. Star Trek V, he's the human on the planet with the ambassadors. And in Star Trek VI, he's the chancellor who gets killed. Okay. Yeah, it's very well-known character actor. But he's playing the third Doctor. And when he finally gets to Earth, and gets, uh, he finds out that the Brigadier and unit were not enough to hold off some of these invasions and Earth is still reeling from some of the after effects of them, and that the Master is actually kind of on the Doctor's side because the Master got betrayed by just about every alien race he brought down to try to get him to help. The Autons being one of them. So, yeah, he's like, why weren't you here? And it's like, well, you would have brought the aliens down anyway. I did, and they screwed me over. It's that sort of thing. It's, so yeah, I get the I get that the master was able to be turned, but still, it's just really so quick. Yes, and that sequence with the long message and Morse code oh. with the brake pad. I'm sorry, I watched it the other night, and even that message seemed long. The one in the book is twice <laughs> as long. The doctor has to have just incredibly long legs. Well, he does have long legs. Yeah, whoever's but he, notating it. Yes, yeah, he's got a lot of... I know. I mean, how long... They, they notice the lights, and they're like, oh, we're halfway through the message. What was the rest of it? We had to wait until it repeats. Yeah. <laughs> and he had time to do all that. Yes. I feel like I've brought up this incredibly specific reference before, but you know that Dorothy Parker review of the A.A. <laughs> Milne play? Yes. It's like, oh, like, give me yesterday, a play I know nothing about other than... <laughs> <laughs> her immortal skewering of it where apparently like the two childhood friends had their own not Morse code but their own tapping code yes. it's been explained in the play and he starts to tie it, tap out with the audience knows his I space <laughs> L O which is like oh god they are not going to type out the entire thing <laughs> apparently yes the audience sits there for like five minutes for the tapping out of I love you <laughs> That's what I was thinking of here. Like, no, surely, surely not the whole thing. Oh, surely God, she, even Milne has restraint. Nope. She hated nope. A.A. Milne. <laughs> there was another review that she did of um, the, the House at Pooh Corner or whatever it's called. And she just throw, she just <laughs> tears it a new one. The very <laughs> last line of it is, and at that point, dear reader, your dear reviewer flowed up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God. So yeah. Now, where were we? <laughs> we were talking about how quick... <laughs> not the formative nature of that review in my personal development. No, no, certainly not. Anything else that stands out to us about the book? Scenes in the book that you like, scenes in the book that you thought were just ridiculous? I like a good angry scene. They have some terrific... Dix does some terrific angry scenes here with um, showing the master of frustration. Oh, yeah. And, um, and how, how together he is when he needs to look together and then how unstable he is once that person has left the room in a way that yes um in uh the first of the new star wars movies some mm -hmm. people found really irritating mm -hmm. but i actually think is a really effective device oh to have the person who seems to be so in control in one scene and as soon as the person who's trying to intimidate <clears throat> loses leaves the room they kind of like flip out and destroy yeah. something or beat a table or something like that but the amusing misunderstanding i had here 
uh, was Rex took the papers and left the office. As soon as he was gone, the master's face twisted with rage. <laughs> he slammed his fists onto the desk, cracking the large, heavy mahogany top. To preserve his vanity, he was forced to pretend his blah, blah, blah. I misinterpreted vanity as, you know, like a dressing table with a big mirror. <laughs> like, like, that would totally vanity. make sense that he <laughs> had an enormous vanity with a big circular mirror and he's primping and styling his hair. like, what's the name at the end of All About Eve? Yes. I am the master. Yes. I am the baby. Yes. So, good scene, but also that would that would actually have totally worked to get big vanity. Well, the master is very camp, yeah. so yeah, that would make perfect yeah. sense actually. Yeah, the feather boa. Oh my god! Well, his line in the TV movie: "I always dress for the occasion." It's like, oh Jesus God, yeah. Um, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I have a line where it says, "I love how the master's ego." is so fragile mm-hmm. that he hides his anger from someone under his hypnotic control. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't have to. And he rages in private. And then later on in that same chapter, um, Farrell knows how to get around his moods. Even though he's being controlled, he's like, oh, the master's in a mood. I better not do this. And it's like, holy shit. This guy is cuckoo. Oh, of course he is. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Do you think it's a good parallelism or just laziness that... We have almost exactly the same factory story as last time, where someone's mm. been on a business trip and comes back to the factory and finds that the Nestines have taken it over. Mm. I think it's handled better here. I think it's a little more bloodthirsty here. I can't remember what happened to that other factory owner. The uh, Well, the, one of the business one. partners had been on a U.S. tour oh, to get orders, partner. and he came back, and the whole operation that they had been working on is shut down. That's right. He ends they up had killed been, by the autons. Because they had been working on dolls, but, you know, that's toys right. for children, not for world conquest. And that's right. That terrifying doll. Mummy, mummy, I need a change. Ugh. But it was it was similar in that they chose to do a very personal story, in that mm. case about the two business partners, or in this case about the family, which I thought the family story fell really flat. Yeah, um, in About the factory. I, I guess I expected there to be more of a parallelism or a contrast between the two stories and then nothing really came of it. Yeah, I could see that. I think the main contrast is going to be that the master's in it. And that's the only contrast, to yeah. be honest. I mean, it, it really just seemed to be that he <coughs> found a weak person mm-hmm. yeah. and then exploited him. Yeah. And in fact, here's the other thing. The parallels are even worse. Because in that first story, we're reintroduced to the Brigadier, we're introduced to Liz Sean, we're introduced to Unit. Here, we're introduced to Joe Grant, we're introduced to Mike Yates, we're reintroduced to Unit. Yeah, you're right. There, there's so many parallels there that it's no wonder that some people say, this isn't really an Auton story, this is a vehicle for introducing new people. Yeah. But that part of that story was significant in that it was this human emotional element right. that interrupted their plans, at least temporarily. Exactly. That the partner came home and he was personally upset mm-hmm. because he felt like they had worked on this project together and that he had been left out and betrayed. Right. And he he couldn't just be brushed off and right. had to and had to be eliminated for that reason. Well, that, that kind of happens that, with the father. Too. Other events and yeah, yes, I guess that happened as yeah. well. Yes, other events and emotion. Although the father here seems to be let seems to be actually, I thought, significantly less emotionally involved. He just wants yeah. production to return. To That's true. That's true. Though he gets strangely enough a backstory. Yeah. Which is nice. I mean, you get the admission that he actually <laughs> loves his son. You don't get to get that on screen at all. Yeah. But yeah, I would say 
if you're seeing, if you're thinking it's kind of a redo, it is. Well, I, I guess I'm wandering around, not arriving at a conclusion in the same way that I felt that story wandered around a long time to not arrive at much of a conclusion other than the dad's going to be murdered by the doll. Yeah, I see. And that kind of yeah. happens here, too. Understandably. I mean, they get further along in their plan this time. But it could have just happened in the first scene the dad was in, and it would have true been acceptable in my eyes. I think we probably needed more shop shop window dummies to be completely accurate. Oh, one other line, too. And this is something that we'll have to talk about as these books go on, the development of the brigadier and the doctor's relationship. Because I said quite wrongly about Inferno that that's the last we're going to see them sniping at each other. I forgot about this story. Oh, yeah. Of course they're sniping. (laughs) And you get the line, the brigadier, aware that he should never have allowed it to go to the museum, knew that he was really in the wrong. As a result, he was naturally insisting that he was completely in the right. (laughs) (laughs) And then the doctor doctor smiled at her indignation. But never mind, we found another clue at the factory, didn't we, brigadier? The brigadier looked puzzled. Did we? Oh, yes, one plastic daffodil. No doubt that will hold all the answers we need. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the doctor didn't get to call Joe a ham-fisted bun vendor, as he does on screen. It's uh, considered uh, uh, one of the worst lines uh, ever. <laughs> a ham-fisted bun vendor. You've bad. ruined it, you ham-fisted bun vendor. You know, it's not on... Yeah, Dix manages to take some of the worst lines out. I mean, Robert Holmes is not always perfect, as we know. Uh, there was a line here that kind of confused me a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, you might be able to slope off in your TARDIS and leave us, said Joe indignantly. She was always a little hurt when the doctor talked about going away again. That kind of annoyed me. Yeah, it's like, thank you. You just met this dude. What yeah. are you talking about again talks about leaving? Yeah, that's the sort of reaction that she should be having in Doomsday Weapon when she's reintroduced. Except here it sounds like she's been there for ages. Yeah. She hasn't well, been there for ages. She doesn't even believe he can travel in space and time yet. Well, at the yeah. beginning she's excited to work with the Doctor because he's important. Mm-hmm. Not because he's anything to her personally. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't know anything about the TARDIS or mm-hmm. traveling in space and time. So that line actually isn't in the uh, original. Yeah. Well, because there's a, an exchange that starts off irritating but ends up not bad. Where is it? Yeah, she's talking to... Mm-hmm. Where she's talking about being disappointed and feeling and brushed off, that and a she's child, like, like a child. Yeah, she's tried being treated like a child, treated like a child, and he and says, "Stop acting like." And she's like, "Well, you know, you're right." And kind of pulls it together, and it's actually yeah. a a moment that makes sense for someone's first starting off like that. True. So to have her to revert to that sort of emotional neediness, mm-hmm. and to have that level of attachment towards the doctor at the end seem contrary to the character development that came before that. Yeah, and come to think of it, it, it kind of mirrors what Katie Manning was going through behind the scenes because she was brand new to this and she was afraid they were going to fire her on the first day because she couldn't remember some of her lines and all this was going on and she thought John Pertwee hated her and all those goings. So, Did yeah, he? it actually kind of works. It works. In Did fact, he hate I, her? Or? No, no, no. They, they loved each other. In fact, one of the most heartbreaking scene things ever is watching the DVD of her last story, and I'm not going to tell you what it is or what's going on in the scene. He'll just wait to break our hearts. Yes, I don't know. Tony's cruel master. Katie Banning is watching it with producer Barry Letts and with Terrence Dix. And they get to the last scene, and the doctor is leaving on his own, and she starts bawling. 
and doesn't stop for the rest of the recording mm. through the uh, end credits. And Pirouette oh. taking her him saying, it's okay, it's fine, we get it. We're moved by this too. But she's just, I'm just so sad for you going <laughs> up on his own. And it's like, oh my god. You've got to work up to that. You've got to earn that. Yeah, and they do. And by the time you get to the end of that story, you have it. Besides, Pirouette, by that point, he's the doctor. He's selling it. At this point, he's selling it, too. So I probably should have asked that as my first question or my last. How do we feel about Pervy now that we've seen him for a full season and how we're comfortable with him now? Do we feel like we have a sense of the third Doctor, the way he's going to be from now on? I complained in the last story of Troughton Doctor that he was far too gleeful, gleeful about the death of his enemies <laughs> to be seemly for a doctor. True. But now that actually works for me because that was, you know, when he himself was sentenced and you get the feeling that, you know, development where this doctor is not cavalier about death. No. At all. At all. Has much more of a sense of gravity and consequences and not in a sort of, over, not a sort of a pompous, overly grave sort of way, but mm-hmm. he brings a lot of gravitas uh, that I, that I wouldn't say Troughton lacked that, that no one was trying to do with Troughton. Exactly. Yeah, he's he's not straight up murdering enemies or anybody no. else yeah. like Troughton did. And as we'll see, the Tom Baker doctor, the fourth doctor will do that as well. And the sixth doctor will do it. And every it's almost like every other doctor, you get a doctor who's just kind of like, yeah, I'll kill if I need to. He, the third doctor's not one of those. Well, him him being marooned on Earth probably has a lot to do with that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because he's around fragile people that need his protection. Yeah. Well, and he can't just kill and run. And he's <laughs> he gets very good at manipulating them. As a matter of fact, there's one sequence that I kind of wish was still in this book, but Dix took it out because it really doesn't push the plot forward any. Um, someone from the Ministry of Defense comes, and the doctor is just hates him at, at once because he's pompous and arrogant and all that. And he takes him down a peg by saying, well, you know, when I was talking to Lord blah, blah, blah in the club the other day, I said, Teddy, I'm not exactly pleased with the kind of people we have in the bureaucracy these days. And the guy gets what he's saying and says, oh, well, I hope I didn't offend you. And he manages to manipulate this guy into doing what he needs him to do, which is authorize an attack. Mm. But, yeah, you get a doctor who is like, I'm on Earth, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, except... But I also get a sense that he's developing that as a new skill, whereas before he could do that to sort of amuse and entertain himself. Exactly. But he had more power to come and go and leave the situation, so he was not in situations often where so much rude on his being clever. That's exactly it. I mean, he is being... He's unit scientific advisor, but he's there at their sufferance. If they said to him tomorrow, okay, go away, he's kind of stuck. He has to go work for another government somewhere. Somebody. Because what other skill sets does he have? There's, there are no Starbucks yet. Can't go be a barista. <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting parallel between the Doctor and the Master, too. The, the Master uses hypnotism to, to yeah. get people on his side. The Doctor just charms them. Mm-hmm. But then <laughs> we get the fourth Doctor who does use hypnotism. Yeah. In the same way as the Master, and almost more frighteningly. Yeah. Yeah, eventually you get to the Seventh Doctor who does Jedi mind tricks all the time to the point of just tapping someone on the forehead and putting them to sleep. Which is what people hated about the Seventh mm. Doctor. And I do too, but that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember Hartnell Doctor ever being portrayed as trying to charm his way through situations. 
bluff his way through. Yeah. Verbally bluster his way through, but not necessarily charm. Seems like more he would power his way through or insult his way through. Or maybe be courtly and formal. But I, maybe I in the Crusaders he does hmm. both because he has to charm the king and he has to hmm. charm uh, Joanna. <coughs> but he manages not, to fuck that up. May not even in all situations be charm, but he definitely mm-hmm. talks people in circles. Yes. And is very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even but, if someone doesn't necessarily like him, they might listen to him. Right. But he can still be fallible about it. Oh, he yes. can still get it wrong. Yeah. Whereas you get to the second doctor and it's like, oh, he can charm his way out of wet paper bag very easily. Well. And so can the third doctor, which is, yeah, something we enjoy about Pervy. Though someone has said that he's definitely the most heterosexual of all the doctors, that he's the one you'd expect to be um, leaning up against a bar somewhere, reeking of high karate and t- asking somebody what's their sign. I mean, he does drive a fast car. He so. does, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just bizarre hearing people describe Pertwee as sexy because at the, on the one hand, you're like, oh my God, look at him. And on the other hand, you're like, well, yeah. Sean Pertwee's that age now, and he's pretty damn sexy, so, yeah. Well, and consider who he's following. I mean, he's told us about the astoundingly wide-ranging sex life of Troughton, but <laughs> that doesn't seem obvious on the screen. About no, no. <laughs> Neither Hart nor Troughton seems to be doing sexy doctor, so no. it, it's not that hard to seem sexier, a sexier doctor than either of them, it seems that, like. That's true. That's true, because, yeah, Hartnell and Troughton were both supposedly... Well, in Trump's case, no, supposedly about it, we know he was a huge womanizer. In Hartnell's case, we suspect it. Pertwee only had two wives, as far as I know. And one only of them, two. Huh? Only two. Only two. And one of them was Jean Marsh, strangely enough, who played uh, Sarah Kingdom from yeah. Dalek uh, Masterplan. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, and Joanna and Crusaders. But they, they divorced long before he ever became the Doctor, and long before she appeared in Doctor Who. It's an interesting little side note there. Sounds like it's Goodreads time, doesn't it? Or unless we have anything else to say. Let me see if there's anything else. Anything else? One quote I like it's an insult. <laughs> it's vicious, complicated, and... Yeah. It's vicious, complicated, and inefficient. Typical of your thinking. <laughs> yes, exactly. In, earlier in the book, uh, talking about the, the Master's punishment if he were to be... Uh, captured by the Time Lords and so mm-hmm. his life stream his life stream would be thrown into reverse. Not only would he no longer exist, he would have never existed. Yes. Um thought that was an interesting uh, punishment. Yeah, well that's Dick's also trying to remind us that the Time Lords are pretty damn powerful. Yeah. Until Robert Holmes himself comes along in about four three years and says, No, they're actually not. <laughs> they just talk a good game. Yeah. They can do that, though. We saw them do that with the uh, the war chief and his band of merry men in the war games. They're erased from existence. Yeah. So, yeah, it can happen. I mentioned this towards the beginning, but the, the consciousness in the final illustration. Mm-hmm. The reason I like that it looks so bored is because there's such a nice sense of motion around it with the explosion. And you get the sense of every limb wriggling in the middle of that. You have this bored-looking eye, and in my mind, like, it's a stunt performer. On another day, another crawl through the field of battle. <laughs> when do I get to take this freaking suit off? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is a thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does, does kind of I really like that illustration a lot. It does kind of look like, God, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after yeah. all. So, 
Just sort of the bored <laughs> weariness. <laughs> Maybe I'll put on a movie later. <laughs> where's the guy, Where's the one at the very beginning? It's like, hi, yes, how are you doing? Yes. How's your mom and them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This is not all right. The, the, <laughs> there are many exa- examples people use humorously of how hard it is to learn certain bizarre phrases in English if you mm-hmm. weren't acclimated to them as a child. And I just <laughs> the one that I, I I feel somewhat original about is like trying like imagine that you're trying to learn English and you encounter. <laughs> Southerner using the phrase "your mom and him." <laughs> like, first of all, parse that this is a one-word "your mom and him" is a one-word contraction for "your mom," comma, and them, <laughs> and then explain this means possibly your immediate family, possibly all your extended family. You'll know from the context. Oh, of course you'll know. <laughs> Who was referenced by your mom and, <laughs> and how frustrating and unfair that exactly. must be. <laughs> well, that's part of the reason why I'm so amused when I hear Christian on um, The Expanse in that mm-hmm. accent mm-hmm. saying things like motherfucker. Does she ever say your mom and him? Well, no, but she, she says things that you're like, oh my god, what how am did I she learn thinking? That? Okay, it sounds like homonym. It's got to be some kind of linguistic <laughs> thing, right? Like it sounds like a word like, no, no, no. <laughs> Four words. Especially the idea of the the, the <laughs> best contractions saying that. <laughs> <Yes>. Like hi, <laughs> how y'all doing? <laughs> What's your how are you doing now? I think it's how the Canadians say it. <laughs> how are you doing now? <laughs> All right, as, as we always do. <laughs> oh no, you have. I have something. a couple other things. Uh, just the the end of the. This, like I said, when I actually read on my computer, I can I can notate. Um, the end of the scene with the Time Lord warning the doctor that the master is there. Uh, he shimmered and vanished, leaving a faint good luck floating in the air. <laughs> yes. Just, yeah. That, that's kind of the mischievous nature of the, the Time Lord. Yes. Like, yeah, and just the way he just like flits in. And it's one of the guys from the trial. In, in the book it yeah. is, anyway. It's yeah. not one of the actors from the trial, but it's said to be one of the ones at the trial. Yeah. The ones that were like, oh, yeah, this this place would be so much more interesting if he st- stuck around. Right. One of those people. Yeah. That effect on screen is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just, like, just a CSO pull-in. See, in my mind, the, scre- the effects are all phenomenal in this episode. Right. Yeah. Like, I thought yeah. it was actually really... Well, Dix is, at his best, mm-hmm. very good at giving us enough and then practicing restraint. Yes. And he has enough bits of humor and characterization and color in here without becoming so impressed with himself that he stops the story to admire his own cleverness or verbosity. Agreed. And so I thought he had a really nice balance of detail and momentum here. Yeah. We are many books away from an author saying, oh, it was a hologram, and then telling us in parentheses what a hologram is. <laughs> Yeah, luckily we're not. I've had a couple of those before. We have indeed. And we're going to have some more. Well, yeah. Okay. I'm afraid so. That's all right. Not Uh, many. (laughs) Just uh, last thing. Mm -hmm. Better get her to sick bay. (laughs) Yes. I'm glad you pointed that out. Exactly. Just. Yes, because it's not the sick bay. The doctor will later point out it's the infirmary, but. But just the fact that it is just direct line from Star Trek. It is. (laughs) Because a sick bay is specifically for a ship, right? That's what I always thought. Because yeah. 
the fourth doctor and Harry have that exchange in the first mm-hmm. story in which he says, don't you mean the infirmary? I know you're a sailor and all, but yeah. Anyway, it's fun. Yeah, I think that was the last of my little notes. Are you sure? Are you positive? Are you O positive? Are you A positive? Last, last one. Did you pass your O levels? <laughs> <laughs> um, Rossini felt suddenly frightened. He wanted to get away from this tall, stim man who could coolly issue threats and warnings while lashed to a chair. This is another one where I wondered if it was an OCR issue. Is this like a long stemmed man? Like, is stem the intended word? Is this just a oh, criticism? I, think, I don't it's know. So I think it's supposed to be stern. It I wondered if it was stern. stern. Oh, God, which but chapter is this? I have to look it up. It's, uh, what page am I on? Because usually when there's a skin, an OCR read it's error, you see what was six. intended. Chapter 6. I think it's supposed to be stern. So uh, he wanted to get away from this tall, stern man who could coolly issue threats and warnings while lashed to a chair. Let's see. Where is that? It's just the... the the image of the doctor just giving it to somebody while tied to a chair mm. and I'm just... <laughs> oh, I read you that whole scene about the doctor giving it to someone while yeah. tied to a chair. Oh my god, where is that? Okay, I'm almost there. It's on 62 in this. So oh, probably... okay, I think I'm, I'm finally getting there. Uh, am I? Yeah. yeah. Tall, stern man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in, on here it's a stick. Yeah, stem. Well, stem, yeah. stems, stem cells, stem. He's, he's a stem guy. You know. yeah. The same with Liz had a doctorate in science. In science. <laughs> he's a stem <laughs> professional, not as a category, but he, <laughs> as an individual, he's a stem well, man. Has mastered he's all of the stem. Science. He represents all of stem. Oh, yes. God. That's, yes. that's but, it. But yes. <laughs> that, that, that was the last thing I had highlighted. Okay. Everything else we've talked about. Alrighty. Well, as we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online rebu- for online reviews of the book written by other readers, except this time. Then follow up. Yeah, son of a bitch. Then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a re- review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just have your review read out loud here, except this time because I forgot to put up a discussion thread for this book. I will make sure to avoid those issues in future because I have been binging television programs and oh my god, oh that good or that bad? Well, yeah, I've I haven't had a bad series. I mean, Cloak and Dagger kind of ended kind of hmm. weirdly, but um, watched Kingdom, which is set in feudal Korea, hmm. the zombie outbreak and. That was good. That old chestnut. The yeah, that old chestnut. Watched Black Summer, which is another zombie thing. Watched, God, watched all the Expanse. Yeah. And now I have to teach again. Oh, my God. Anyway. That's why you've been binging TV. That's, yeah. <laughs> the average rating for this book on Goodreads, out of five stars, is 3.72. The exact rating as Inferno, in fact. Huh. Which just astonishes me. Well. Rabbit Princess gave the book a 4 out of 5, saying the story itself is quite breathlessly thrilling, especially in the brig and the unit soldiers had to blow up the Autons real good, and very easy to imagine. It was difficult to restrain myself from cheering and groaning aloud as the Doctor's fortunes rose and fell throughout the story, which I read in basically a single day's worth of bus travel. I was cracking through those pages so fast it made the Autons' energy beams look seem like pea shooters. 
One thing I did kind of object to was the fact that Joe seemed to require a lot of consoling hugs from the doctor, which probably works okay on screen, but for some reason looks silly in print, as if the story were written by a girl imagining herself as Joe and nursing a small crush on the doctor, who as we know reeks of high karate. And to be honest, that is a fairly small quibble, considering I would probably go to pieces just as much as she did if I were in that situation. But the rest of the narration was very good, fleshed out enough to make the book more than the shooting script with some narration stuffed in between the dialogue. As Inferno was. I would definitely recommend this if you like Doctor Who and haven't tried out one of the earlier stories yet, and don't be surprised if you find yourself giving shop window dummies a suspicious eye for a while afterward. <laughs> Ken gives it the full five stars. <clears throat> And he says, as much as I enjoyed the greediness of Pertwee's first season, this story really is the start of the quintessential Third Doctor era. The unit family feels fully formed, try saying that five times fast, with not only the introduction of Joe Grant as the Doctor's new companion, we also get Mike Yates too, and not forgetting the Doctor's rival and the Master. Dick's wonderful novelization moves along into brisk pace and really cements the relationship of all the new characters together, while keeping all the scares in Roger Robert Holmes' original script. I like that the Santarans also get a reference. They would later be created by Holmes for another Third Doctor story. It's a great retelling and amongst the best the Dix has written for the range. And finally, S.E. gives it three stars and a very short review. Deadly plastic daffodils that threaten mankind. Need I say more? <laughs> so, let's get your reviews, shall we? Um, Dalton, let's start with you. Out of five stars. Uh... I'm going to go with four on this one. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the writing's really good. Terrence Six, like we've said multiple times, cares. Uh, it's it's all there. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a little wrapped up too quickly mm-hmm. for me. But overall, um, yeah, it was a fun read, a quick read, an easy read, a neat read. No, I, I really enjoyed this one. I, I immediately just felt... Um, like I said earlier, I felt like it was going to be a good read just from the first couple of pages, mm-hmm. and it was, it was a good read. Okay, it was and enjoyable. Blame the quickness of that ending on the source material because I think oh, Dix actually tries to make yeah. it flesh it out a bit more. Yeah, and that's you know that's been an issue in a number of books, so Always. it's not it's not just this one, and Agreed. that's just me wanting more because it, the rest of the the story is really good, okay. and so I just I wanted a little bit more. I just wanted something to feel a little more complete at the end as opposed to just uh, he changed his mind mm. well just wait okay yeah <laughs> there's a there's a book coming that I know for sure will probably combine the best that Dix has to offer with a story that's actually quite meaty more meaty than it is on screen okay uh Allison 3.5 wow which for me is tossing hats and babies in the air yeah <laughs> yeah my my I, yeah I thought it was one of one of the better dicks we've had <laughs> like it's a lot harder dick than usual. Well, a very, a over an overall very well balanced story until that ending. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it's actually, I, I've not tried to write a story like this, but I would imagine quite challenging to pull off. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And he changes. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to get to that with my rating. Um, for me, it's also a four out of five. And the reason why is because knowing the televised story like I do. 
I I didn't even go into this is different, this is different, this is different because so much is. He's essentially mm-hmm. taken the plot holes that are in the Robert Holmes script and the things that make it actually seem like it's going too quick. Yeah. And slows the story right down so that it still has a breakneck pace mm-hmm. on the on the page, but you don't get this whole thing of oh well she went to this factory last so that must be where the master is you know that sort of ra- rationale that you get in the TV series yeah. and a lot more new stuff like making that professor a clown just because mm. he can yeah. which is just like god yeah yeah. yeah. he definitely <laughs> makes the master more impressive than he is on screen which is hard to mm. do when you've got Roger Delgado playing mm. the master because Jesus god he's amazing and so is this book, to be honest. It's really good, and I love reading early Dick's stuff, and I'm hoping that if we continue on through the early Baker era, we're going to get more of this because that's around the same era as this. Say in terms of both the art and the story, it's more pulpy mm-hmm. than we've read. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In a way the, that, that's real, that, that <coughs> could have been very silly, but I thought here was done really well. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking, I was wondering what the the cover was reminding me of, and it's totally reminding me of cover. the 30s and 40s pulp fiction, mm-hmm. the science fiction of the time. You're absolutely right, and the story is essentially that. I mean, except it doesn't have quite enough of the Lovecraftian horror. Yeah, we'll get that later. <laughs> All right, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it is indeed. The stunt consciousness had a really long work week. <laughs> Very in demand that week. And this the last scene. I can get just get across this field. <laughs> I, just I can go in, home, kick back. <laughs> I just flew in from outer space and I don't know I'm tired. <laughs> because I'm part spider and part octopus and part fly. Or something. Crab. Crab. That's a, none of which flies. Okay, never mind. Well, thank you guys. <laughs> and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get another later Terrence Sticks book with his novelization of Mind of Evil. Will it be when he's lost interest and is just phoning it in for checks? It's getting close to that time. It's going to be late, uh, mid-80s or late-80s, so I'll let y'all read it and make your own determination. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in one of those spaces like Crazy Person. You can visit our nearly pristine Reddit at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. By the way, those of you who've been going to Reddit and have not been able to find those threads, it's because me, not knowing as much as about Reddit as everybody else, was forgetting to actually um, authorize my own posts to Reddit. So I'd post it and it would be immediately removed because it wasn't approved by the moderator, which is me. Huh. So, <laughs> a clever one. <laughs> yeah, I know I'm an idiot. It's all there now. It's not as pristine as it was before because there are actual posts there now. Also, feel free to watch videos of our first twelve episodes. Give us a thumbs up, a comment on YouTube, YouTube.com/user/forward/slash/emperordalic/forward/slash/videos, where I have finished Emperordalic's commutes. There yes, we go. yes, where I've just where I've just so finished Emperordalic's commutes. Is there a camera in here? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Be excused. Follow us, sorry, follow us on Twitter, <laughs> where DWTargetBC is subscribed to us via the podcast of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it usually does, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55. Along with many, many others, this guy is extremely talented. All of his remixes are wonderful. Please give him a follow and a thumbs up. 
Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You, you burn our listeners every week with if all else fails you and it usually does <laughs> no, I don't you mean sniveling for that. loser no I didn't mean that I mean that's my you maladaptive no that's my fatalism <laughs> about my own life I thought that was your right. insult about no you're trying to is. contact me in all these other places and I haven't responded well, <laughs> try this if you're such a sad sack you couldn't figure out any of those things well, why don't you try this here's the saddest part that's how I heard it I don't remember the last time I checked that email address so yeah, they're probably messages. Perhaps Joe has friends. been emailing you and crying. She probably has. Oh, doctor. That's one thing I totally forgot. So there were times I thought, okay, well, Joe's obviously the point of view character here. Yeah, she is. And then other times I thought there really wasn't one in the same way. Mm. How do you mean? Uh, well, a lot of these books don't have a very clear point of view character. It's more of an omniscient um, view. Right, right. So the times that she was more the point of view character stood out to me. A little bit. Probably the bits when she's actually there. I mean, I mean, you can only have the point of view of a character really yeah, be yeah. there for... Yeah, the stories usually don't lend themselves to that unless it's the Doctor, and we've really only had that half a dozen times or fewer. I think it's because we're not spending a lot of time in a limited point of view in each character's head like we did with um, the first book, when and they had that one older guy and his wife bitching about the sphere. Mm. Here we have Farrell and we're in his head for a little bit. Well, I don't remember with Troughton we had any stories that were largely from Troughton's, from the Doctor's perspective. No. Like, we had a couple of really lovely ones with Hartnell Doctor that started with him sort of yes. thinking about yeah. life and thinking about his mm-hmm. travels and then, you know, we have the main story, but then, then that's, that meditation is revisited at the end. I don't remember well, anything like that. Remember Troughton. when those were written? Most of those Hartnell novelizations were written in the 80s. Mm. And they were written by older writers who weren't Terrence Dix, who were essentially coming back to their old scripts from 20 mm. years previously and mm. saying, how can I make this interesting? Mm. And they were willing to do it. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a failing on Dix's part, but I think Dix definitely approaches all of these stories in terms of plot rather than mm. development of the sure. doctor as a character. Whereas you read those new novelizations of the new series episodes, and it's flipped on its head, and it's very doctor-driven, which is pretty brilliant in its own way. But yeah, point of view characters are different. In these I thought it was the only thing that saved the individual instances of screaming, mm-hmm. even though there were still way too many of them. Right. Yeah. Is you know reading, thinking, okay, it's perfectly sensible to scream in this situation. Mm-hmm. It is horrifying. Yeah. Let's put it this way: If you're getting, if you're getting a good story, I mean, not perfectly sensible, but understandable. Well, yeah, exactly. But if you're getting a good, well plotted story with good visuals and description, it's probably mid seventies hmm. to late seventies. If you're getting um, kind of, <laughs> then then that's probably going to be early eighties because hmm. it's almost going to be totally Terrence Dicks. If you get characters, if you get stories where suddenly you've got a lot of psychological development and a lot of references to the Doctor being alien and mm. being feeling alien, yeah. then you've definitely got something that's more mid to late mm. 80s. And it's not Terrence Dix. That's interesting because I hadn't put that together because we're reading them so wildly out of order of their publication. Yeah. So. yeah. And the only reason that I'm able to come to, come to that is because this is my first time really realizing that. 
that, you know, just look at the publication date and you know whether you're in for a good time or whether you're in for a bit of a slog. <laughs> for a slog, call. <laughs> and, and I'm going to start, <laughs> start putting that in public restrooms. So I'm going to put your number up. Oh, thanks a lot. For a slog. For a slog. Call. For a good slog through time and space. <laughs> call Dr. Science. That's 773-369-6969. Oh, my dear God. Now I have to put this at the end of the episode. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. I'm going to stop recording now before we say anything worse.